The nuclear industry likes to pretend that they're doing something about all that nasty, deadly, radioactive waste that they keep producing. And they hide the truth of what they're talking about behind a jargon, condescension, and manipulation. That's why, when you hear a real expert like Dr. Gordon Edwards say, In the nuclear industry, we have the reverse Midas touch. The reverse Midas touch means everything that you touch turns to radioactive waste. The point is, if you put radioactive waste into a container, and then at some future time take it out of the container, the container now is radioactive waste. And if that container is put in another container, then it becomes radioactive waste. And so everything that radioactive waste touches becomes contaminated, and so the volume of radioactive waste just grows and grows. When you hear the central problem of radioactive waste put so clearly, you can't help but realize that you are in the seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we hear from Dr. Gordon Edwards of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility on the proposed Chalk River Nuclear Waste Megadump adjacent to the Ottawa River and upstream from the drinking water for Ottawa and Quebec. We'll also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, activist shout-outs, and more honest nuclear information than you're going to be hearing on mainstream media, especially this week. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, May 8, 2018, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. The big honking breaking story today is that President Trump declared that he was pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal unraveling the signature foreign policy achievement of his predecessor, Barack Obama, and isolating the United States among its Western allies. Trump's announcement, while long anticipated and widely telegraphed, plunges America's relations with European allies into deep uncertainty. They have committed to staying in the deal, raising the prospect of a diplomatic and economic clash as the United States reimposes stringent sanctions on Iran. It also raises the prospect of increasing tensions with Russia and China, which also are parties to the agreement. At the same time, he announced that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was headed to North Korea to continue discussions with Kim Jong-un, expecting that the strategy of pulling out of one nuclear agreement will make the president of North Korea eager to get into another nuclear agreement with the United States. 
former President Barack Obama, almost immediately published an essay online in reaction, where he said, there are few issues more important to the security of the United States than the potential spread of nuclear weapons or the potential for even more destructive war in the Middle East. That's why the United States negotiated the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action in the first place. The JCPOA is working. That is a view shared by our European allies, independent experts, and the current U.S. Secretary of Defense. It has significantly rolled back Iran's nuclear program. Whether you agree with this or not, we will be posting a link to his entire essay on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 359. And to demonstrate exactly how easy it is for misunderstandings to take place that could have major consequences, on Monday, the White House issued a statement to reporters in an email from the Office of the Press Secretary that stated, Iran has a robust clandestine nuclear weapons program, using the present tense has as opposed to the past tense, had. That's a big difference, and the White House made a pretty massive correction to it shortly thereafter, claiming it was a clerical error. That's right, push us closer to war over a typo. And it seems that there are forces in this country that want us to go to war because on February 22nd, the National Nuclear Security Administration released a draft environmental assessment for the RAD lab at the Los Alamos National Laboratory to raise the plutonium limit at that facility 10 times, which would support expanded plutonium pit production. And plutonium pits are necessary for the creation of new nuclear bombs. Right. Like the 6,450 nuclear weapons we already have aren't enough. And Patrick Malone of the Center for Public Integrity has published an article in USA Today entitled Safety Concerns Plague Key Sites Proposed for Nuclear Bomb Production and focuses on recent internal government reports that indicate serious and persistent safety issues plaguing both of the two candidate sites, Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico and the Savannah River site in South Carolina. That will be another link on the website. As for nuclear reactors, it's deja vu all over again at the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant, or lack of power plant, at the foot of Cape Cod in Plymouth, Massachusetts, went down yet again. That marks the third time this calendar year that operators have been forced to take the 45-year-old rust bucket of a nuclear reactor offline to deal with equipment problems. As of April 30th, the reactor had been in shutdown mode for 53 of the first 120 days of the year. That's 44% of the time. David Lockbaum, director of Nuclear Safety Program for the Union of Concerned Scientists, characterized Pilgrim as, quote, vastly underperforming the U.S. reactor fleet. That's a pretty low bar. The problem is with two valves that regulate the amount of water flow into the reactor, where it is turned into steam. We split the atom in order to boil water to create steam. Isn't that efficient? And Neil Sheehan spokesmodel for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission said, the reactor won't go back online until the valves have been repaired. Duh. He went on to say, 
While they are not classified as a safety system, they are related to the functioning of the reactor. So they're not just ornamental, Neil? A reminder that Pilgrim is classified by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission as a Column 4 plant, which is one step above mandatory shutdown. It's supposed to shut down in 2019, so why they don't shoot it now and put us all out of our misery? Money, 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 money. And yet Pilgrim has lost about $62 million in gross revenues and $31 million in net revenue so far this year due to unplanned shutdowns related to the equipment problems. Yet, like a gambler with a compulsion, Energy keeps gambling with our lives and safety, trying to win that money back. In Colorado, environmental activists and an ex-FBI agent are trying to block the long-planned opening of the Rocky Flats former nuclear weapons site for recreation arguing that hikers and bikers could inhale deadly plutonium particles and that the government skipped a required investigation. Their legal challenge, filed on Tuesday in federal court, intensifies the latest eruption of public mistrust around one of the nation's murkiest Cold War sites where, despite decades of studies and a $7.7 billion Superfund cleanup, questions remain about whether plutonium levels in soil are safe for people. The Colorado Department of Public Health and Environmental Officials on Tuesday reiterated their assessment that Rocky Flats, on wind-whipped grassland 16 miles northwest of Denver, quote, no longer contains plutonium, listen for the spin speak, at dangerous levels, end quote. No definition of what they mean by not dangerous levels, because radiation is dangerous, because it accumulates in the body from every exposure that we get. In San Francisco, Tetratech, the company accused of fraud in the cleanup of contaminated land at the former Hunters Point Naval Shipyard, is getting hit with a massive lawsuit. It's named for providing falsified test results that said the soil tested at the former naval base is safe. The Navy and the Environmental Protection Agency have both come out and said that's not true, and they believe the ground may still contain radioactive material despite 12 years of cleanup and testing. And they want to build housing units there. As for nukes in space, NASA and the Department of Energy's National Nuclear Security Administration have now claimed successful demonstration of a miniature nuclear reactor power system that could one day be used in long-duration missions to the Moon, Mars, and beyond. In terms of planetary contamination from radiation, we've already done it to Earth, to Mars, courtesy the Curiosity and its nuclear-powered engine, and Jupiter, because that's where we crashed the Galileo with its 17 pounds of plutonium onto a planet where we have no idea what that might have done and will do in the future. And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that sound a week. It's a modern business axiom that if you can't drum up support for whatever you're doing, buy it or at least the illusion of it. Last October, in New Orleans, about 50 people in bright orange shirts filed into City Hall for a public hearing on Entergy's request to build a $210 million power plant in eastern New Orleans. Their T-shirts read, Clean Energy, 
good jobs, reliable power. The purpose of the hearing was to gauge community support for the power plant. But for some of those in the crowd, it was just another acting gig. Yes, that's right. At least four of the people in orange shirts confessed to being professional actors. One actor said he recognized 10 to 15 others who work in the local film industry. He said, It was very shady, very secretive, especially when we got paid. They literally paid us under the table. And under the table, they got $60 each time they wore the orange shirts to meetings in October and February. Some got $200 for a speaking role, which required them to deliver a pre-written speech. One man, Keith Keough, said, They paid us to sit through the meeting and clap every time someone said something against wind and solar power. They were all asked to sign non-disclosure agreements and were instructed not to speak to the media or tell anyone they were being paid. But, of course, being actors, they wanted to have their work acknowledged, if not by name, at least by having their words in print or broadcast. Paying people to create the illusion of grassroots support is known as astroturfing. Grassroots, astroturfing... Get it? Although it's misleading, it appears to be legal. The same thing was done at San Onofre when there were massive hearings taking place before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Southern California Edison paid its workers on staff and bussed them in and fed them and gave them colorful T-shirts with slogans on them and absolutely jammed packed the hotel ballroom that was being used for the hearing. These workers applauded on cue. They had to be stopped from booing and making negative noises. And they weren't allowed to leave the hall and go to the bathroom or call their babysitters because, hey, they were bought and paid for, so the company was going to get their money's worth out of them. You see, with the energy companies and so many other places, it's the image, the illusion that counts. The truth? Eh, who cares about that? And that's why, Energy and the Astro Turfers, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of the week. Over to the UK where the entire 15 billion pound or 20 billion U.S. dollar cost of Hitachi's nuclear power station on Engsley could land on the government's balance sheet, even though taxpayers are expected to hold only a minority stick. The Japanese industrial giant, in a stunning act of nuclear blackmail, said that it will walk away from the 2.7 gigawatt plant at Waifla unless it secures U.K. state support. The final deal may force taxpayers to take an equity stake in this reactor, possibly as much as one-third, alongside Hitachi and the Japanese government. If they don't, Hitachi will leave behind their ball, their bat, and all the contaminated waste and return home to let the U.K. figure it out. Yet another act of extortion by the nuclear industry. And in Hong Kong, the ongoing Fukushima food fight yielded a minor win for Japan as a requirement to test all imports from Japan for iodine-131 has been lifted. 
Here's why. The half-life of iodine-131 is only about eight days, and Fukushima was more than seven years ago. Initially, Hong Kong prohibited imports of vegetables, fruits, and milk products from Japan's Fukushima, Ibaraki, Tochigi, Chiba, and Guma prefectures. Hong Kong is the latest country to drop iodine-134 from the list of radionuclides that must be tested for, but considering the half-life for cesium-134 is a little over two years, and for cesium-137 the half-life is 30 years, like Singapore and the EU, Hong Kong will continue to require Japan to provide certificates for cesium-134 and 137 on every consignment of food products imported from Japan. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, when it comes to nuclear, the bad hits just keep coming. Mainstream media barely notices nuclear problems, let alone bothers to cover them consistently or with any depth. So that's why you have to count on Nuclear Hot Seat to do the work. Get into nuclear stories with more facts, continuity, and context, as well as a healthy dose of skepticism and a side order of Oh, really? We work hard to get behind the scenes, under the skin, and into the heart of nuclear matters every week with fresh information and an unrelenting perspective. Does having this information each week help you understand what's going on? Good. That's what we're here for. And that's why we're asking for your help. It's no surprise that there are costs incurred in bringing you the nuclear news and interviews you get here. And we need help in meeting those expenses. So if you value the kind of information Nuclear Hot Seat provides, help us keep going by sending a donation of any size. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. That's where you can send us a donation of any size, and thank you very much. And for those of you who want to make a big difference but lack the budget, you can help us out a little at a time. On the website, there's also a big green donate button that allows you to quickly and easily set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month. The same as a cup of coffee with maybe a little nosh. It really does make a big difference in meeting our monthly expenses. So please, do what you can to help Nuclear Hot Seat to search out and share nuclear information that helps you understand issues that the nuclear industry would really rather you not know about. Whatever you can do to help, know that you have my deepest gratitude. Here's this week's featured interview. Dr. Gordon Edwards is president of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility. He is one of Canada's best-known independent experts on nuclear technology. It seems that there is nothing that this man doesn't know. Since he became involved with nuclear issues in 1977, he has worked with the Canadian government, First Nations tribal councils, consulted with government and non-government bodies, and spoken internationally at conferences sponsored by Physicians for Global Survival, International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, Dr. Helen Caldicott, and many others. We discuss the Chalk River facility, and its current plans for over 70 years' worth of nuclear waste. It's not a pretty picture. This interview was originally presented on Nuclear Hot Seat number 316 from July 11, 2017. Dr. Gordon Edwards, so good of you to be joining us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. 
My pleasure, Libby. Let's start out talking about the proposed Chalk River radioactive waste mega dump. Give us some background on the Chalk River site so those of us who aren't familiar with it can understand what it is, what's there, and why it's so dangerous. Well, the Chalk River site was first of all established in 1944 by a decision made in Washington, D.C. It was a military decision connected with the World War II atomic bomb project, and the idea was to build the highest flux reactor in the world, which would be particularly good at producing plutonium for bombs. And indeed, the first reactor at Chalk River was started up exactly one month after the bombing of Hiroshima. It was the ZEEP reactor, Zero Energy Experimental Pile. And there was a bronze plaque, which has now been removed, stating that this reactor was part of the World War II atomic bomb project. It was part of the plans to produce plutonium for nuclear weapons. The ZEEP reactor was just a small pool reactor to provide details for the larger reactor, which is called the NRX reactor. NRX was, for many, many years, the most powerful reactor in the entire world. And all of the plutonium that was produced at that reactor was sold or given to the Americans or to the British for weapons purposes. In fact, the very first sample of plutonium that the British got came from Chalk River, just about seven months before their first atomic bomb was exploded in Australia. And it might very well be that the plutonium from Chalk River was actually in that bomb. They used the experience at Chalk River to uh, plan their own very large reprocessing plant, that is, plutonium separation plant, at Windscale in northern England, now called Sellafield. So Chalk River really was born out of the World War II atomic bomb project. And from right up until the year 1985, plutonium was sold to the Americans. Up until 1975, it was sold for weapons purposes. And from 1975 to 1985, it was sold with a proviso that it not be used for weapons purposes. So that's the background. Now, at Chalk River, there was also, because the British were so interested in learning about how to produce plutonium for their weapons program, they actually uh, helped the Canadians to build two, not one, but two reprocessing plants at Chalk River. One was to separate plutonium from irradiated uranium fuel. And there were two reactors at this point. Uh, in addition to the small ZEEP reactor, there were two larger reactors, the NRX, as I already mentioned, and the much larger, about 10 times larger, NRU reactor, which is still operating to this day. And again, they took the spent fuel and they, they ran it through two reprocessing plants. One was to separate plutonium from irradiated uranium. And if your listeners don't realize what's involved here, in order to get the plutonium out of the spent fuel, which is very intensely radioactive, lethally radioactive, um, they have to dissolve the entire bundle in boiling nitric acid and convert as much as possible into a liquid solution, a very toxic, very radioactive, very heat-generating, and uh, very dangerous, of course. Then they can chemically separate the plutonium from the rest of the garbage, the radioactive garbage that's in there, which consists of hundreds of man-made or human-made radioactive materials that were created during the fissioning of the uranium atoms. So it's very messy, and it leads to large volumes of liquid radioactive waste similar to those tanks that are at Hanford, Washington. And we have 21 such tanks at Chalk River 
which are in the process of being solidified. The contents of those tanks are in the process of being solidified. All but one, which we'll talk about a little later on. And so there was a second reprocessing plant, which was dealing with thorium fuel. The Americans were very interested in possibly developing an alternative route to a new generation of atomic weapons using thorium. Thorium is a naturally occurring radioactive material, about three times as abundant as uranium. It is not a nuclear fuel. It cannot be used to build bombs directly, nor can it be used to fuel a nuclear reactor directly. However, when thorium is put inside a nuclear reactor that is perhaps uh, fueled by uranium, the thorium atoms are transmuted into an artificial isotope of uranium that does not exist in nature called uranium-233. And uranium-233 is an excellent nuclear explosive material. And from a military point of view, the nice thing about uranium-233 is that when it is created, it is 100% enriched. You don't need to enrich it because it's 100% pure uranium-233. As you can well imagine then, there are all kinds of nasty radioactive waste at Chalk River, and about 50% of those wastes are military waste left over from the, not only the World War II atomic bomb project, but the post-war nuclear weapons buildup. Canada sold uranium for the nuclear weapons buildup during the Cold War, which uh, lasted right up until 1965, and they also sold plutonium from Chalk River for the same purpose up till 1975. That's where most of the nastiest waste at Chalk River come from. What is the nature of that waste, and what has been attempted in the past to deal with it, and how successful has that been? Well, in the early days of the nuclear program worldwide, these wastes were very badly dealt with. I'll just give you one example. The world's first serious nuclear accident happened at Chalk River in the NRX reactor. The NRX reactor in 1952 underwent a partial meltdown and a series of hydrogen gas explosions that blew the roof off and released radioactive materials into the environment. And there were a million liters of contaminated water, very, very highly radioactive contaminated water, the same kind of stuff that's in those tanks at Fukushima right now. You've got about 1,500 tanks of very radioactive material, water. Well, that's the stuff that simply ran through a pipeline and allowed to sink into the soil because they had no emergency equipment on hand to do anything else with it other than to run it into the river. So they sank it into the sandy soil, and of course it does find its way into the river through underground uh, migration. At the same time, they had this uh, devastated nuclear reactor. They managed to prevent a total meltdown, but the core of the reactor was destroyed, and they had to put the core of the reactor, the damaged core, onto a flatbed truck. Actually, it was one of these graders that uh, has a long separation between the cab that pulls the grater and the, uh, the radioactive hulk of the reactor, which was on the body of the grater. And they had to have a relay team of drivers so that each driver would only drive for a couple of minutes. They'd run to the cab, drive for a couple of minutes, and then run out of the cab, and another driver would run in, and they would drive for another couple of minutes, and then he'd run out. And they just carted this core of the NRX reactor to some place on the Chalk River site and simply buried it there. This will give you some idea of the kind of uh, slapdash methods that were used to kind of deal with radioactive waste at those times. It was just a question of clearing the deck so they could get on with the work. And the work consisted of 
trying to restore the NRX reactor to operation, which they did. They put in a new core and they used 600 military men because it was considered a military operation. And uh, many of those military men came from the U.S. Nuclear Navy under Admiral Hyman Rickover. He said, hey, this is a great opportunity for our boys to learn how to deal with a nuclear accident. So they sent, I think it was about 300 uh, from the nuclear Navy that came up to Chalk River. And one of those people was Jimmy Carter, who was a nuclear engineer in the Navy at that time. So um, this is where Carter got his first real-life experience of dealing with a nuclear accident. And certainly it wasn't his last. I remember the yellow booties at Three Mile Island. Right. So they did an awful lot of things at Chalk River in the early days. Uh, They also vitrified some of the waste. Vitrified, again, for the benefit of people who don't know the word, it means taking the liquid left over from reprocessing, you know, having dissolved this witch's brew of radioactive materials in nitric acid, you can then sort of mix it with other materials and uh, create a kind of a glass a glass block about the size of a five-pin bowling ball. They made a bunch of these vitrified glass containers and, again, buried them very shallowly in sandy soil in order to keep an eye on them and see how much radioactivity leaked out of them over the years. So this was one of the very first experiments in the world of vitrification of of post-reprocessing liquid waste. People have no idea as to how important the Chalk River facility was not so much to the Americans as to the British, the French, and even indirectly the Israeli government, because the French, if we go back before Chalk River, just a few years before Chalk River, there was a secret laboratory set up in Montreal in 1942. And this laboratory included some of the top nuclear scientists from Britain and France, as well as Canadians working in a junior capacity, working on the best possible ways of producing plutonium and separating plutonium for military purposes or for civilian purposes because they had in mind the idea that plutonium would be also the fuel of the future for nuclear reactors. So they had both a military and a civilian focus at the same time, but the main priority was definitely military at that moment. So when the French went back to France, uh, the Americans would not allow them to the French to go to Chalk River because they were considered a a strong security risk due to their many European connections and also to some of the uh, communist leanings of some of the people in the French contingent. So they sent them back to France, but those people then knew about the design of the NRX reactor because they had worked with the British on designing that reactor in the first place. So they used that knowledge to help Israel build the Demona reactor in Israel, which they then subsequently used to produce plutonium for their bombs. Meanwhile, Canada gave a carbon copy of the NRX reactor to India as a gift, and India used that reactor called the Cirrus reactor, C-I-R-U-S. It was a copy of the NRX. They used that to produce plutonium for their first atomic bomb, which they exploded in 1974 in the Rajasthan Desert. All of this was going on thanks to Chalk River. It's amazing because We don't usually hear the background of how deep the roots of Chalk River go and how deadly its influence has been in the world. Now, there's currently debate or discussion or planning taking place in Canada for the Chalk River near-surface disposal facility, otherwise known as the radioactive waste megadump. 
When was this proposed? What's the thought behind it and how far has it gotten? I'm not sure exactly how long ago. I would say about eight years ago. Due to public prodding, the Canadian government finally woke up and realized that there was a multi-billion dollar radioactive waste legacy at Chalk River and at a few other sites in Canada. There's also a, a nuclear establishment in Manitoba called the White Shell Nuclear Establishment, which is also under the purview of the same organization, Atomic Energy of Canada Limited, that was responsible for Chalk River. Now, when they started taking a measure of the contaminated buildings, the contaminated pits, the contaminated soils, and the uh, liquid waste and the solidification requirements. And, uh, you know, the one thing people should know about radioactive waste is that it's kind of a reverse Midas touch. That Midas, you know, King Midas, according to the legend, everything he touched turned to gold. And so he starved to death because he had nothing he could eat. Can't eat gold. Well, in the nuclear industry, we have the reverse Midas touch, a phrase that was coined by my friend Robert Del Tredici. The reverse Midas touch means everything that you touch turns to radioactive waste. The point is, if you put radioactive waste into a container, and then at some future time take it out of the container, the container now is radioactive waste. And if that container is put in another container, then it becomes radioactive waste. And so everything that radioactive waste touches becomes contaminated, and so the volume of radioactive waste just grows and grows. And uh, that's a problem in itself. So when they took stock of all the different sorts of radioactive waste they had, they concluded that it, it was about a $10 billion problem, a $10 billion nuclear waste legacy. $10 billion of no productive value other than to just protect the environment and protect human health by somehow looking after it very carefully. And of course, they talk about a cleanup, a $10 billion cleanup, but cleaning up, it gives the wrong impression. Uh, when we think about cleaning up, we think, oh, well, you make it spick and span. No, no. All you do is you, you move the waste from one place to another place. You can't destroy it. You can't eliminate it. Because radioactivity is a form of nuclear energy that cannot be shut off. And so all you can do is just move it from one place to another or put it into a different package. And so this $10 billion was really a question of repackaging and repositioning all these radioactive waste. Now, we had a previous prime minister named Stephen Harper, who, although uh, much more low-key and much more clever, in some ways he was similar to uh, Donald Trump in the sense that he didn't believe that we needed all these environmental regulations. And so he fired 2,000 scientists from the environmental agency here in Canada, the federal agency, and he also put the total process of environmental assessment for nuclear facilities entirely into the hands of the nuclear establishment through the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission. So in other words, hands off everybody, the nuclear people are going to look after their own show. Chalk River was run by what we call in Canada a crown corporation. It's a totally government-owned agency called Atomic Energy of Canada Limited. What Harper did was he gutted that agency and put the entire control of the Chalk River facilities, as well as the other facilities owned by Atomic Energy of Canada Limited, he put them in the hands of a private profit-making consortium of multinational corporations, one of them Canadian, uh, that's SNC-Lavalin, and two others were American and two others were British. And these guys are operating under a six-year contract that can be extended to 10 years, 
And they are responsible now for looking after these wastes and are not answerable to anybody but the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, which uh, we in Canada have found to be largely an enabler of the nuclear industry rather than an effective guard dog, more a lapdog than a guard dog. And the CNSC, for example, in their 17 years of existence, have never refused to grant a permit for any nuclear facility. The commissioners have never refused to grant a permit. It's the same as the NRC here in the United States, that it is called the Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission as opposed to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Yeah, another way, we like hockey in Canada. We Hockey is, is our favorite sport. And uh, you could say that if you think of the nuclear industry as a hockey team, then the CNSC is more the coach of the team rather than a referee. They never send anybody to the penalty box. They never uh, sort of discredit somebody from playing altogether. They simply give them a pep talk. <laughs> anyway, this consortium of private companies has now proposed to build a huge mound, five stories high, covering an area that would be the equivalent of 70 professional hockey rinks above ground, less than a mile from the Ottawa River, the Ottawa River is a major river that flows down into the St. Lawrence and it flows right through the nation's capital, which is Ottawa, downstream from Chalk River. And they propose to put into this dump virtually all of the low, what they call the low and intermediate level waste, not only from Chalk River, but from other facilities, for example, the Manitoba facility I mentioned to you. And that would include a great many uh, post-fission uh, radioactive materials including a lot of plutonium and a lot of fission products in various forms, in various chemical forms and physical forms that would go into this dump. They say that only about 1% of the dump would be intermediate level waste, but 1% of a million cubic meters, that's how much they're talking about, a million cubic meters, 1% of that is 10,000 cubic meters. So 10,000 cubic meters of intermediate-level waste is a lot of stuff. And the fact that they would put it all into one huge mound, so you might think, well, is this like a staging area? Is this like a temporary thing? No. This is intended to be a permanent facility. And they eventually intend to simply abandon it there. So that's the proposal that we're now facing. And at the moment, there is a an, about a 1,000-page environmental impact statement that has been produced and uh, we have a deadline until August 16th for the public to comment on this and they hope to get the thing operational by 2020. So uh, that's what we are facing here in Canada but it's not only Canadians I think that should be concerned about this but everybody around the world because what we are seeing here is imagine if Canada goes ahead and does this, what kind of example does that set for the rest of the world? It basically says, don't worry about radioactive waste, even if it's plutonium-bearing waste, even if it's leftover from spent fuel dissolved in nitric acid, even if it's uh, the internals of nuclear reactors, all of which will remain dangerous for hundreds of thousands of years, let alone millions of years. But it's okay to just abandon this stuff right beside major water bodies like the Ottawa River, or in another project that you wanted to discuss during this interview, right beside Lake Huron. Uh, those are from commercial nuclear reactors, whereas these wastes that we're talking about at Chalk River are not from commercial nuclear reactors. They're from nuclear research only. But about 50% of that is of the volume 
would be, in fact, weapons-era nuclear waste. It's basically a weapons dump. With so much going against this site, I imagine there must be some major opposition that has risen up. What has been the nature of this, and how effective has it been so far? That's a very good question. And, you know, unfortunately, we have found that the nuclear industry has been pretty good at hoodwinking people, uh, including especially politicians, by convincing them that uh, everything is being looked after very well and that therefore you don't have to worry your pretty little head about it. Moreover, they have done a pretty good job of convincing people that this stuff is too difficult for non-scientists to understand and therefore you couldn't have a reasonable opinion about it anyway, all of which is untrue. The fact of the matter is this is extremely important material. It's not too difficult for people to understand. It's simply that the industry including the regulatory body, goes out of its way to cast a veil of mystification over many of these subjects by using excessively technical terms, excessively baffling uh, numerical notations, and uh, making it so that most non-scientists, including politicians, feel that it's a little bit beyond their comprehension and consequently they better let the experts handle it. Our view, on the other hand, is that we are now, and it's only happening right now in Canada at least, we are now really entering into the age of nuclear waste in a serious way because never before in Canadian history has anybody proposed to abandon nuclear waste for forever, uh, right by the shores of, of major river bodies and without consideration of perpetual ongoing maintenance and monitoring and intervention when necessary in order to prevent any leakage that begins, which is surely going to happen. In fact, even the EIS talks about how much material, including plutonium, will be leaking into the Ottawa River. They don't deny it's going to happen. They simply say it's all very acceptable because it's within what they consider to be acceptable limits. However, these are only mathematical models. They are not reality. And how strong, how effective has opposition to this radioactive waste megadump been? The opposition has been growing, but unfortunately, none of the levers of power are within our grasp. The industry proposes, and the CNSC, by law, they are by law the agency that determines yes or no to go ahead with this, and we do not have confidence in the CNSC as a guardian of public safety or environmental protection. In fact, the very fact that the huge mess exists in the first place, the fact that the Chalk River site is such a radioactive horror story, demonstrates that these scientists and engineers in the nuclear establishment have not shown any competence in protecting the environment in the past. Why should we think that suddenly they have become champions of the environment? The difficulty, however, is that this is completely, you can't even go and visit these sites. They are completely off limits to civilians. And because of the fact that Chalk River was deliberately built in a remote area, it's pretty well uh, sort of a, a local wasteland. The only people living around there are people who work at Chalk River. So the result is that it's hard to get people directly concerned about the project. Now, we have managed to stimulate Quebecers' concerns to a certain degree, but not to an official degree yet. The Quebec government has not yet officially weighed in and declared that they will not tolerate a nuclear waste dump 
right on their borders because the Ottawa River is in fact the border between Quebec and Ontario and there are communities living right across the river in Quebec, right across from Chalk River. There has been less concern, strangely enough, on the Ontario side, maybe because the Ottawa River flows into the St. Lawrence at Montreal. So it's the Quebecers who are going to be more affected by any runoff from this waste than Ontario people, Ontario residents. So it, it has been difficult to get an effective mobilization underway. The only thing that I think would possibly work to stop the approvals process of this would be for the Canadian government and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to directly intervene and say, hold on, we do not have, at the moment, an acceptable environmental assessment process. When Trudeau was running for office, when he was running for Prime Minister, he actually stated that one of his goals was to restore the integrity of the environmental assessment process, which has not been done. So he has a good rationale for blowing the whistle and saying this environmental assessment process is not adequate and therefore we have to wait until we have a real consultation process with Canadians and with First Nations to develop an environmental assessment process that can be acceptable and then we can revisit this entire question of what we're going to do with these wastes. That doesn't mean that you have to stop the so-called cleanup. You can, you can continue with the cleanup. But you should not be considering the possibility of abandoning these wastes, uh, giving permission to abandon these wastes in any kind of form whatsoever. For the time being, they should be very carefully packaged, very carefully monitored, and kept under close surveillance, and not put in a gigantic mound where they will all be mixed together, and where the different kinds of wastes will not even be able to be recaptured or re-separated out again. They're going to have to be segregated so that we know what's in each particular package. We know how bad these wastes are. Some of them are, are very, very bad, and some of them are not. That's what we're hoping. Fortunately, we have had an inquiry here in Canada into the environmental assessment process, and one of their recommendations of this inquiry was that the environmental assessment process should be taken out of the hands of the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission and the government, the Trudeau government, has welcomed this recommendation, but they have not yet acted upon it. There is a problem, however, and that is legally, under the present law, CNSC does have the authority to judge this particular project. We're hoping that, uh, that the government will have the fortitude and the foresight to say, well, maybe you have the legal right, but politically we do not give you that decision-making power. Dr. Gordon Edwards of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility. The interview was originally presented on Nuclear Hot Seat number 316 on July 11 of 2017. Since this interview was recorded, here's an update. As of last month, April 2018, the 82 mayors who belong to the Montreal Metropolitan Community, or CMM, voted unanimously to adopt a motion opposing the development of a permanent nuclear waste disposal site in the municipality of Chalk River, Ontario. The CMM says it's concerned the proposed dump site, a project of a private company, Canadian Nuclear Laboratories, could potentially contaminate the nearby Ottawa River in the event of a leak. And the Ottawa River is what provides drinking water for all of Montreal. 
and the United Nations held a hearing on Canada's First Nations and radioactive waste on April 24th of 2018. Among the many speakers was Grand Chief Patrick Mattahy of the Anishinaabek Alliance of 40 First Nations. Chief Mattahy said, Putting waste underground makes no sense because nothing man can build will overcome the constant seismic activity. Nuclear organizations are throwing money looking for a dump in an area sufficiently financially depressed to take it. We're not willing to be the first one to experience a nuclear transport accident. Refurbishing nukes is not worth the money because renewables are coming. They must get our consent before storing waste. And it's lunacy to be planning a six-story high waste mountain by the Ottawa River. We can't allow the waste to be transported or stored in our territories. The governments are guilty, guilty, guilty. And Dr. Gordon Edwards also attended the session at the United Nations where he said, The age of nuclear waste is upon us. The plan is to ship highly radioactive liquid waste through Mohawk community for the convenience of the nuclear industry. Only government can stop it and they are asleep at the switch. We will keep you up to date with further developments on this story. Activist shout-out! We have a simultaneous shout-out from Beyond Nuclear and Nuclear Information and Resource Service, or NEARS, on the exact same topic, the need to stop the Nuclear Waste Policy Amendments Act, H.R. 3053. This bill would force federal agencies to reinvest, meaning throw good money after bad, in the failed Yucca Mountain site in Nevada, the volcanic earthquake-prone site, which was canceled, never completed, and never had waste brought into it, was declared unworkable, and the license application withdrawn by the U.S. Department of Energy nearly a decade ago. Now H.R. 3053 would force Nevadans, Shoshones, and everyone between reactor sites around the United States and Yucca Mountain to bear the hazards of shipments to a site that is guaranteed to leak and waste billions of dollars on this failure instead of finding a real solution. Passage of H.R. 3053 would trigger thousands of high-level nuclear waste shipments across the country to Yucca Mountain, and would legalize new nuclear dumps in Texas and New Mexico for the consolidation of highly radioactive irradiated fuel rods in areas unsuited for a permanent solution. As locations, they are targeting economically depressed areas where culture and lack of opportunity spell environmental injustice from the worst of all hazardous wastes. And the Nuclear Waste Policy Amendments Act sometimes referred to by the name of its original sponsor, Representative John Shimkus of Illinois, would overturn existing law and gut the few protections that prevent unnecessary transport of highly radioactive nuclear waste. Current law prevents both redundant shipments of the most highly radioactive waste and abandonment at supposedly temporary sites. Abandoning these guidelines and putting thousands of nuclear waste shipments on our roads, rails, and waterways will not solve any of our problems with nuclear waste. It will make them much, much worse. So what can you do? Take action now. Contact your U.S. representative. 
urged them not only to oppose H.R. 3053 on the House floor, but help lead the opposition, including striving to block the bill from ever reaching the House floor. It's best to do this by the phone because the vote is coming up quickly. You can do an online search for the information or simply call the Capitol switchboard at 202-225-3121 and ask to be patched into your U.S. Rep's D.C. office. We will also have links up to where you can submit a Sierra Club web form and sign a credo petition initiated by the SEED Coalition, which is the group fighting so hard on the ground to stop the building of this new nuclear waste dump in West Texas. And a heads up that my book, My Nuclear Memoir, is now with the editor and the cover is being designed, so it's moving forward towards production. Yes, I glow in the dark. One mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and nuclear hot seat is on track for publication either later this month, May, or next month, June. If you'd like to receive notification of when the book is available and when the pre-sale begins, make certain you've signed up for our weekly email with a link to the show. That's the list we'll be using. If you haven't done so already, go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the big yellow box, put in your name, your first name is fine, and an email address. We will never sell, barter, auction off, or give to Cambridge Analytica your information. So take a moment to sign up, and when my book becomes available, that's a guaranteed way for you to find out. Here's today's final thought. What a world, what a world. I'm old enough to have lived through the Cold War and hate the fact that it's returning and heating up with the threat of an, if we have nuclear weapons, why can't we just use them? With a set of tiny fingers hovering above the launch code button, just itching for the chance to push it. I really can't say any more right now. It's too depressing. So let the opportunistic media pundits roll and have their day. I just hope that those with more power than I have remember the old saying. You may think you have a plan B, but remember, there is no planet B. To which I add, and the law of unintended consequences is adjudicated by a spirit with a wicked sense of humor. Never ask what could go wrong, because unfortunately, we just might find out. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 8th. 2018. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear, Nuclear Information and Resource Service, or NEARS, msnbc.com, santafenewmexican.com, capecodtimes.com, thank you Christine Legere yet again, DenverPost.com, SanFrancisco.CBSLocal.com, EastBayTimes.com, TechSpot.com, TheLensNola.com, that's for New Orleans, Louisiana, NukeWatch.org, PopularMechanics.com, ProPublica, and the reporting of Patrick Malone. 
telegraph.co.uk, thetimes.co.uk, newsandguts.com, newyorktimes.com, the soul-dead cubicle drones who grind out press releases for world nuclear news, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and a shout-out to you, the wonderful Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers who are around this world, 123 countries on six continents and counting. Plus, a big shout-out to everyone who's listening on our growing network of broadcast stations around the U.S. You are the ones who show your love for life on this planet by being the kick-ass defenders of nuclear truth and supporters of atomic awareness that you are. Thanks for visiting the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page. If you haven't stopped by yet, please come on down and visit us. Check it out. Click like, follow, post, and share. Let's get some dialogue going. And you can find our back episodes, all 358 of them, at NuclearHotSeat.com. And for a quick shortcut, at the URL, throw in a backslash and type out the word blog, and it will get you to a page where you can scan the episodes ten at a time. Theme music, written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you want to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered to your email every week with a link, it's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for that yellow box I told you about just a short time ago, and sign up for weekly email links to the latest show, as well as notification when my book comes out. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. We are copyright 2018. Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, with more than a little bit of attitude, take a moment to send a donation of any size to nuclearhotseat.com. We will really appreciate your support. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that there is no such thing as a limited nuclear war. The effects are limitless and last forever on this, the one planet that we've got. That's it. That is your nuclear wake-up call. So please, don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.